so if you're joining us for the first time, uh, we have been going through a series through the Sermon on the Mount. If you've been here since the beginning, I'm sure this is getting a little repetitive. But we do it intentionally because we want you to be experts of the Sermon on the Mount. And again, the main theme of this sermon, uh, if you've been trekking, it's all about the kingdom. It's about the kingdom life. And in fact, a lot of us, we obviously know it in our Bibles and modern day that this is called the Sermon on the Mount. But Matthew, the writer of the, the Gospel of Matthew, he actually doesn't call it the Sermon on the Mount. He labels it the good news of the kingdom. So literally, it's not called the Sermon on the Mount. It's all about the good news of the kingdom because as we hopefully have been showing throughout the series, the, everything that Jesus talks about and preaches on and speaks on in this sermon, it all points to the values and the culture of what it means to be part of God's kingdom. That's all it's about. And so one thing Jesus has been doing is you'll notice he's being pretty surgical and all comprehensive of almost every sphere of life, right? He talks about our vertical relationship with God, and then he talks about our horizontal relationship with people. He goes deeper by speaking about our inner motives and our state and our motives, what's going on. But he also addresses our external practice and our external possessions. So inside, out, top, down, and all around, basically what this is showing is that Jesus, when it comes to God's kingdom, he's painting an all-encompassing, holistic picture of what it means to be a part of God's kingdom. And this is important for a lot of us to know, because a lot of us, I know, we grew up in a culture and a DNA where maybe religion or following Jesus was more like a part-time gig, or it was like a weekend thing. But what we're seeing here is that to be a disciple in God's kingdom, it needs to impact all that we are, all that we do, and all that we have. If you didn't know, that's actually one of the, the main visions and missions of our church. Uh, I'm curious how many members remember our vision statement, but our mission is to raise passionate followers of Christ in all of life. Because we recognize the challenge is not to love Jesus here and there. The challenge is for Jesus to comprehensively influence everything that we are. And so that's what we hope to do, and that's what's happening in this sermon. Now, how does one accomplish that? How does one grow in this all-comprehensive discipleship? Well, in today's text, we'll see that Jesus makes it clear kingdom living or seeking God's kingdom first, as we heard last week, it cannot happen in isolation. You cannot seek God's kingdom by yourself or alone. In other words, as disciples, Jesus, he's going to make the case in kind of a roundabout way, we actually need each other in the kingdom to be able to seek God's kingdom first, to be able to grow. And that's why the church, as imperfect as it is, that's where it's supposed to be a visible, tangible display and practice of kingdom life and kingdom community. Now, unfortunately, uh, those in the church oftentimes are far more sinful and broken than those outside the church, amen? <laughs> that's why the church often is the worst testimony to what the church ought to be. And the challenge for us as Christians is not to look at the church as it is in its broken state, but to pursue the church as Jesus intends it to be as best as we can through the power of the Holy Spirit. And I love, again, the Bible because it is in touch with reality. Jesus is fully aware when you put a bunch of sinners together with other sinners to try to help each other, it's going to be messy. It's going to be broken. It's going to be complicated. If you want to know what that looks like, I'm sure those of you guys who are married understand. Right? Sinner plus sinner equals more sin. That's what inevitably is going to happen. And I'm sure we've experienced that mess if you've been a part of the church in any number of years. And the messiness that I'm going to refer to in today's text, I think it's actually rooted in what Jesus calls a judgmental spirit. A judgmental or critical attitude that we often have towards one another. So if you have your Bibles or your programs, uh, turn with me to Matthew chapter 7. 
It's a very well-known text, often misunderstood text. Matthew chapter 7, we'll read verse 1 to 5 to see what Jesus has to say about the issue of judging one another. Matthew chapter 7, verse 1. It's the reading of God's word. Judge not that you be not judged, for with the judgment you pronounce you will be judged, and with the measure you use it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is the log in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Amen. It's the reading of God's word. Uh, A few years ago, a reputable organization that we often reference called the Barna Group took a nationwide poll in the U.S., basically getting a lot of information about how people understand and experience Christianity in the U.S. And one of the main questions they asked was, pick your top words, top single words to describe your experience of Christians and of the Christian church. And try to guess what the top word. Number one, 87%, and this was at the top of the list, Christianity, the Christian church and Christians are judgmental. That was number one. Number two, close second, 85% said Christians are hypocritical. Judgmental, hypocritical. And if you're curious, they got top three. The third one was anti-gay. Very interesting. So basically what they were saying is the judgment and the hypocrisy, it manifests particularly in this group of people, namely homosexuals. So that's very interesting to see. That's people's perception and experience of Christianity. In other words, the majority of America views Christians as people who look down on people, who don't share their own views and values. And number two, hypocrites because they don't actually practice what they preach. They don't live up to their own values that they seemingly judge people by. Now we've seen already earlier in chapter 6, religious hypocrisy has always been a problem that Christians deal with. And Jesus talks about it. He did talk about it. But today we'll see that Jesus also speaks on this not modern problem, but very historic problem where judging one another is something we all struggle with. I'm sure if I talk to any one of you, no one here likes to feel judged. In fact, when it comes to our church experience, I'm pretty sure we all know at least one person who has left the church because they had a bad experience where they felt judged by the church. Now here's the thing. When you think of someone who is judgmental, who comes to mind? Or what kind of person comes to mind? I'm willing to bet you don't bring up the mirror and think it's you. When we think of a judgmental, condemning Christian, we often think of those picket signs, fire and brimstone preachers, don't we, that are standing by the side of the streets and say, you know, uh, you're going to go to hell or, you know, you guys are all sinners, you need to repent. That's what we naturally think of. But Jesus is not talking to a niche group of people. He's talking to all those who are listening, almost assuming you guys all struggle with judgment. And so I'm hoping through the text we can see that we have an issue with being judgmental. And this is a problem, especially as Christians in the church who live in the kingdom. And how we need to work towards not necessarily judging in this manner, but doing it in a way that is reflective of the kingdom. And so we'll look at the text in three ways. Number one, we'll break down the issue, right? What exactly is he talking about? Number two, we'll see why this is problematic, a.k.a. the problem of judging. And then third... The necessity, though, of judging. We actually still need judgment. So let's talk about first the issue. Again, just like last week's teaching on being anxious, Jesus is not arbitrary here. He lays his point from very get-go in verse 1. He says, don't judge. In the similar way to last week, he says, do not be anxious. The main point is laid out for you in the opening statement. Do not judge. 
which is basically because it's most likely Christians back then were struggling with judging each other, particularly in the church. Now, the idea of being judgmental or judging someone is something I think we're kind of all familiar with, but it's very kind of broad. It has a lot of nuance. So let's kind of narrow down the definition to explain what Jesus is talking about here. Uh, I'm going to get a little nerdy here, but the original word for judge is this Greek word krino. And basically at its most bare-bone definition, krino means to decide, to decide. It carries the idea that you get your perception of something, you gather all your experiences and all the data you have, both objectively and subjectively, and you come to a decision or a judgment. So let me give a very uh, silly way that we do this all the time. One icebreaker game I love to play when I meet people is this or that. It's a mentally play with me now, this or that. Would you rather only have sushi for the rest of your life or steak for the rest of your life? Only one. Or would you rather only have ramen or udon for the rest of your life? That's a tough one for me. I'm a noodle lover. Or McDonald's or Chick-fil-A. Or carne asada or al pastor. Live by the mountains, live by the sea. And as your brain is spinning right now, what you guys are all doing is you are crinoing, you are making a judgment and coming to a conclusion in the simplest form. Another way we understand the idea of judging is when you evaluate something like a performance or a presentation. Uh, recently, Netflix has uh, resurrected one of my favorite cooking shows, Iron Chef. Grew up on that thing, loved that thing, so I'm watching it again. And at every cooking competition, every dance competition, combat sports like UFC, you always have a panel of judges. And what judges basically do is they observe, they gather their evaluations, and they come to a conclusion, this was better, this is more superior, and they're making a judgment. We all get that. So we do it all the time, individually, in society, corporately. And to make judgments, it basically boils down to this formula, which is these three steps. You initially observe something. You take what you observe and you make an evaluation on that observation. And then you cast a judgment or you come to a conclusion. Right? I think we all agree that's kind of how it happens. But even though the idea of judging sounds negative, it's actually very neutral. The problem is that we as sinful people often turn it into such a negative thing. Now, with that definition, obviously Jesus, he's not saying we should never judge or make decisions. That would be utterly inconsistent with not only reality, but even the own sermon. The whole Sermon on the Mount, is it not a general call to judge between the ways of the world and the ways of the kingdom? That's what he's saying. He's saying, observe, there's a way to live in the worldly way. There's a way to live in the kingdom. I want you to evaluate and decide what is a superior way to live as a fully human being. Later in the chapter, in fact, I think Pastor Tom's going to preach on it. He says, I want you to identify and judge false teachers. I want you to observe their life, evaluate if they're consistent with the gospel, and if they are not, make a judgment that they are false teachers. So Jesus, he does give specific calls to make judgments. So what's the kind of judging Jesus is referring to here? Well, first, obviously, it's in the context of relationship. He's not saying judgments in general. He's saying judgments towards others. And secondly, this is where the famous picture in verse 2 to 5 comes in, because he's talking about a specific way, a specific posture of judgment that I think Jesus deems utterly inappropriate and unacceptable in light of his kingdom and of his gospel. Now, uh, I really like how Pastor Tim Mackey, he kind of clarifies this. Uh, one thing about the Bible is if you're ever unsure about something, most often the Bible actually gives commentary on itself. 
And so this is where it's actually helpful to look at. I don't know if you knew, but the letter of James, James is often, many people know him as the half-brother of Jesus. The letter of James is actually, most, the majority of it is actually a commentary on the Sermon on the Mount. I don't know if you guys knew that. So what James does is he looks at the teachings of the Sermon on the Mount, and he applies it pastorally to a new generation and to his own context, which is really cool to think about, which is essentially what we're doing as pastors. So James chapter 4, verse 11 to 12, I think it should be up there. It's basically a commentary that colors in what Jesus means by judging. And this is what it says. He says, brothers and sisters, do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against a brother or sister or judges them speaks against the law and judges it. There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy but you, who are you to judge your neighbor? So there's other clues and words here that James gives to kind of clarify what's the kind of judging Jesus is talking about. James is saying the type of judging that is inappropriate is characterized by things like slander or speaking against a brother or sister. And basically what this is is you're not only making an observation about someone or their behavior, but you take it a step further. You now make an assumption or an evaluation beyond just observing, and you start to think like, you know, I, I think I know their motive, or I think I know what kind of person they are. And you start to do more than just observe, and based off your personal subjective evaluation, you start to draw conclusions. What do I mean by that? So it's one thing if someone doesn't show up on a Sunday. That's an observation. But then you take it a step further and say, you know why they're not here? I bet you they're out clubbing. They may or may not be, but you're evaluating in your heart. And you take that evaluation, make a conclusion, and all that person cares about is partying. What you've done now is you've made a judgment. You've taken it all the way to drawing a conclusion. And what that does is it subconsciously, you cannot help now to look down on those people. And here's why it is so destructive to community. We have this sinful urge to now broadcast our conclusions. Don't we do that? You know what that's called? Gossip. It's called gossip. And this inevitably affects and influences how not only you view, treat, and talk to these people that you cast judgments on, but by virtue of broadcasting it, you are now communally affecting how the community affects, views, and treats that person. This is the problematic judgmental cycle that Jesus is saying tears apart the kingdom community. That's what he's talking about. Let me give you a practical example of how I saw this play out in my upbringing. So I grew up in late 90s, early 2000s, Fullerton, F-Town. We've cleaned up a bit, but back then, my alma mater, high school, Sunny Hills, was known as the place where Asian gangsters went, right? I'd like to think I was one of them, but I wasn't. I was like the goody two-shoes pastor's kid. But a lot of my friends were. And back then, it was very explicit. A lot of my friends smoked cigarettes. They dressed very kind of like Asian gangstery. It's not like today where most of our church, you can go to a J. Crew, Uniqlo, and that's like half our church, right? Sometimes I look at a Uniqlo mannequin, and I can name like 10 members. I'm like, oh, I know where they got their outfit. So we're a lot more decent in the way we dress, but back then, I'm talking like baggy pants, spiky, bleached hair, sunglasses indoors, earrings, silver chains, long socks, Nike Cortezes. I think like 10% of you understand uh, that's, that's my upbringing. Well, there was a friend of mine who got saved at a retreat that we attended, and he told me, hey, son, can I come to your church? I want to take this God thing seriously. I want to grow in the faith. And I reluctantly told him, sure, uh, not, not knowing how it would turn out. So he came. And I will never forget the first Sunday he came and the amount of judgment that was unleashed on my friend the moment he parked his car. He told me the moment he got out of his car, uh, all the Korean deacons at the church gave him death glares, judging them with 
their eyes, basically saying, you don't belong here. What are you doing here? One Korean deacon had the courage to actually say, are you lost? You know, what are you doing here? And when he told the church adults, like, oh, I know Sam. I was the pastor's kid. So they're like, Sam, oh, they ran over to me. And in Korean, they whispered in my ear, like, why are you friends with this guy? This, this guy is a bad influence. Don't hang out with him. Like, don't bring him to our church. And I could go on and on. Unfortunately, that was his first and last Sunday. And it's so eye-opening how judgmental Christians can be sometimes. It's like the air we breathe. And again, it's understandable to make an observation. New car, new individual, doesn't quite look like he's from around here. That's the observation. But the evaluation is the assumptions that the church community made, which is so unloving and harsh, which wasn't even true. They assumed, this guy's definitely not a Christian. He must be a bad kid. He's going to be a bad influence. He probably does drugs. So it's no wonder why slews of my friends who are like that will never step foot in church again. Because they have tangible experiences where they felt so judged. Now that might be a more explicit example. But I would argue we do this all the time in varying degrees. Let me give some examples. If you, like when you meet someone new in the church, isn't it tempting to not only make observations about them and their behavior, but to also kind of with the little data you gather, make assumptions and conclusions about that person. Right? Like you have someone who's lived... 20 plus years of life, they are complex human with a lot of different, you know, variables that are affecting who they are and why they do what they do. And you, in the span of talking to them for 10 minutes, have drawn a conclusion that you know what this person is like and you know who they are. And you kind of categorize them, oh, there's this kind of person. That's judgment. You're judging them. Or when you hear that someone did something over the weekend that you deem to be bad, or you see their Insta story, and in that 10-second clip, you see, like, Oh, I know exactly what's going on here. Isn't it hard not to just make an observation, but to also attach motive and intent or draw a conclusion about that person? And here's the hardest part about it. Isn't it so tempting to not only draw your own conclusion, but to now share your conclusion with others? Did you hear about that person? Can you believe this person? Oh, I know exactly what they're doing. Oh, I know exactly what's going to happen. So prideful we are in our judgments that we understand how people operate, what they're thinking, what's going on in their lives. Or maybe, as you hear this, you were on the receiving end of this kind of judgment where you felt people prematurely made assumptions and conclusions about who you really are without even really getting to know you or trying to understand you or get a clue about your context. The people who I hear are most blessed by the church is when they say, I really felt like the pastors in the community tried to really get to know me. Those who feel the most judged are those who are written off in the first five, ten minutes because, oh, we know what kind of person you are. I don't think it's hard to see why a judgmental culture is so destructive to relationships, but more specifically to a kingdom community that says we operate different from the world because that's how the world operates. And so Jesus, what he does is he explains how there is no place for this kind of judgment amongst his followers, especially in the church, which leads to point number two, the meat of the text. Why is it problematic if this is what we're doing, especially as Christians? The main powerful image Jesus gives is a familiar one. In verse 3 to 5, it's straightforward. So let me read it to kind of paint the picture of the image. Okay, now visualize it because it's going to carry on through the rest of the message. Verse 3, this is why it's a problem. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, 
But do not notice the log that is in your own eye. Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is the log in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Now the image is visceral, it is vivid, it is intentionally overemphasized by Jesus, and it is very straightforward. So let's point out a couple interesting things based off that. First, Jesus does acknowledge that the other person does have a speck in their eye. That's the first thing to notice. It's not like you're noticing an illusion. It's not like you're seeing something that's not really there. It's saying that there is a legitimate speck in the other person, be it a character flaw, be it some sort of behavior issue, be it a sin. So whatever it might be, Jesus is saying there's something that the other person has that is worth addressing. But the emphasis and the whole issue is not about them or what they have or what they're doing. It's about you. And the posture and heart you need to have to approach that person in a way that is helpful and not hurtful. Where do I get this? Clearly the emphasis, if you haven't caught it, it's in the log and that beam in your own eye as opposed to the speck in theirs. Now what is the significance of the log in your eye metaphor? Well, let me put it this way. Very practically speaking, if you have a log, okay, so I like how one pastor says, he said, imagine like one of those big wooden telephone poles, those beams. It's intentionally sarcastic almost in a way. If you had that, there are two default postures that you need to adopt when you approach someone with a spec. Okay? Posture number one, understandably, is you need to approach with care and caution. Right? Could you imagine if you had something small stuck in your eye? Now, by speck, some people think it's like a sawdust because Jesus was a carpenter. So he's thinking like, you know, if you're kind of like sanding a wooden thing or a wooden beam and a little speck of sawdust lands in your eye, that's kind of what's talking about here. So say you have a speck of sawdust in your eye, you go to the eye doctor, and the eye doctor comes in, and he has a wooden beam in his eye. He's like, all right, let me help you get that out. Don't you think at the very least if he has that log in the eye, you would want him to know that he does, and he would therefore approach accordingly, cautiously, carefully. And what Jesus is saying is that as Christians, we need to all understand we all have personal issues, we all have personal sins that will inevitably always affect our ability to see others clearly. You guys see what that's saying? In other words, that's just the reality of what it means to be a sinner. That the starting point is you have a log in your eye, so how much more cautious and careful ought you to be, therefore, in your approach to others, speck or not? Now, very practically, you have to be careful when you approach them that you don't physically knock them out with that log in your eye. You need to be extra mindful as sensitive as you're trying to address the speck in light of the log in your eye. In other words, quite simply, first and foremost, we need to acknowledge I don't have the full picture or the clarity to know what's really going on in that person's life. And what this posture of care and caution does is it guards us against making hasty or inaccurate evaluations, conclusions, or pridefully assuming we know all there is to know to cast judgment on someone. Uh, I thought about how this played out in my life. So growing up, and uh, I went to a lot of retreats, and at retreats there would always be these prayer times. And for some reason, during the prayer times, they always said, hold everyone's hands. And I hated that. I hated that. I don't like that kind of intimacy. I prefer my hands to not be held, right? Even my wife, Angela, it took me like five years before I actually held her hand. And uh, so I did that. And so every time there would be a retreat prayer time, they'd say, hold your hands. What I would do is I would get up, and I will go outside to go get water, go to the bathroom. I would just avoid the situation. 
And two different staffers approached me two different ways about this. The first staffer came up to me and said, Sam, it's not good that you're leaving during prayer time. You need to pray. These are your brothers and sisters in Christ. You should not care about being close to them. In fact, what's wrong? Why are you avoiding prayer? In other words, totally not only making an observation that I'm leaving the room, he's evaluating the circumstance thinking, I don't want to pray, that I'm not spiritual, and concluding, therefore, what's wrong with you? Never felt more distant from someone. That's what judgment does. It casts a posture of distance. Second staffer came up to me, not with judgment, but curiosity. Again, knowing full well, he doesn't saw the full picture, he said, he said, I noticed you left during prayer time. Was there a reason why? And there absolutely was a reason. One of my biggest insecurities in life is hyperhidrosis. I get super sweaty hands. Massive insecurity. So I don't like it because it makes me feel insecure. If I hold people's hands, they judge me and they're like, oh, what's wrong with you? Ill? I thought I would never get married. This was like a massive thing I actually carried. First person left no room whatsoever to consider. There might be more going on than I'm just a bad Christian. The second person closed the gap. Instead of a posture of distance, gave room for grace and compassion. That I might not have the full picture. Can you tell me what's going on? Care and caution in the way that he approached me. Judging creates a posture of distance. Care and compassion seeks to close the gap. I love this quote. Be kind for everyone you meet is facing a battle you know nothing about. I think that's very kingdom-like. The second posture, which is related to the first, is a posture of humility. And I would argue, man, one of the main characteristics of a kingdom citizen has to be humility. If you didn't catch it, the main contrast in the image Jesus gives is the contrast between this massive log beam and then this tiny speck, both in terms of size, gravity, and degree. And Jesus is doing that to combat the natural human tendency we have to overly emphasize the faults of others and to overly downplay our own. I think one commentator puts it well. He says, we have a way of swelling others' speck into logs and shrinking our logs into specks. I would argue this is just how a fallen world operates. As self-protective sinners, we cannot help but to rationalize and justify our faults. Whenever I tell someone you need to be gracious and they say, I can't do that, I'm not good at that, I say, you're a liar. You know why? Because you are so gracious to yourself. You guys recognize that? We are professional mercy grace dispensers to ourselves. That's just how we are as fallen people. So for example, let's say someone says something hurtful to you, close friend, church member, spouse. Isn't your natural inclination to judge them and say, how could you say that? You're so evil. What's wrong with you? Man, you're trying to like bring me down, aren't you? Now reverse that though. Let's say you say something hurtful back to them. Isn't there a host of reasons why it's justified? Like, you don't understand my context. I'm so tired today and you're just not giving me a break. Or, you know, I'm only saying that because I'm just trying to, like, you know, point something out. You're reading it the wrong way. How interesting that tendency we have to swell specks into logs and to shrink logs into specks. I think that's why a lot of the relationships in the world are so broken, so filled with hurt and pain because people are constantly judging each other, constantly condemning each other, looking down on one another, and Jesus says, in my kingdom, you need to be humbled to realize, and this is a very gospel DNA truth, your own sins and issues are far more serious and problematic than theirs. 
Now, you might be thinking, how is that fair? So I'm going to care about this log, and that person is not going to care. Well, guess what? He's talking to every disciple, meaning if every disciple viewed life in that way, that my biggest problem is the log in my own eye, how humble a community would it be? You guys see what's going on here? It creates a posture of humility because we realize I have a lot more to work on than they do. I'm just as bad. We are all equally sinful. So Jesus says this kind of judgment, if it's without care, caution, and humility, is problematic because not only are you being a hypocrite in verse 5, but it is incompatible with the kingdom and the gospel. Now, is Jesus saying, therefore, never call each other out, never point out the specks in each other's eyes, that there's absolutely no place for judging in the church? I think this was one of the most unfortunate takeaways and applications more recently where people will reference this and say, ha-ha, you have no right to judge me. Don't tell me anything. Leave me alone because Jesus says don't judge me. Because a lot of people interpret it this way. But let's make it clear. That's not what Jesus is saying. Point number three, the necessity. Remember, the issue Jesus is speaking against, it's not judgment in general. He's speaking against a form of prideful, hypocritical, careless judging that is unhelpful and unfit. But look at verse 5, which is very important to take away. He doesn't say, therefore, the speck in your brother's eye, now leave it alone and deal with yourself. Verse 5 clearly says the whole point is to be able to humbly and carefully approach that person to be able to help them remove the speck. You guys catch that in verse 5? I'm not making that up. That's the whole point of this. So the clear implication is we all have spiritual blind spots. We all have sinful specks that were perpetually going to appear in our lives. And so what Jesus is saying is we need each other, and the only way we can actually help each other in this is to approach each other with truth, grace, and humility. That's the only way we can actually grow and help each other. In fact, the picture of the New Testament church, to use this analogy, one of the main practices of the New Testament church was speck picking. Almost makes me want to include that in our membership covenant. <laughs> I commit to be a speck picker. That's how the church grew. That's how the church stood out. In a world where it's increasingly privatized and you leave me alone, I leave you alone, don't bother me, don't judge me. The church was the one place where the judgment was welcomed because we understood it would be done with truth, love, and humility. So Ephesians 4 says that's how the body grows. Not when the finger says, I'm the finger, you're the foot, let's just do our own thing. But when the body holistically gives permission and wants to be speaking into each other's lives to grow, that is how a community becomes kingdom-oriented. And so in light of that, there's three specific groups and applications for our church that I want to give. First, I think for some of us, I think you have to deeply consider and reflect if you struggle with being a judgmental person. I don't think everyone struggles with this as much, but some of you do. Now here's some symptoms or keys that this might be you. Number one, you more easily point out flaws than show grace. Like if I spend a week with you, do I hear an overabundance of how everyone is messed up and all these flaws in people rather than an extension of grace to people? That could be a sign. Number two, you never give the benefit of the doubt. People are all terrible people. You always think the worst case possibility is always true. Zero benefit of doubt, zero mercy, zero grace. Three, you avoid those who disagree with you. Why? Because you are the letter in the law. 
The way you perceive life, the way you perceive the world is the truth. That's it. Your perception of people is the way to go. So if people disagree with you, you just avoid them because they don't know. You know, they don't know. Number four, you gossip regularly. This is hard to identify, but if the, if the DNA of the most of the conversations you have with others is about talking behind other people's back, that is problematic. And this very well may be one of the most prevalent but unchecked sins in the modern church. Number four or five, you dislike or outright refuse to receive criticism because you either don't think you have faults or you don't like to admit your faults. If you have a hard time taking criticism or the reason why you are a certain way is always justify and explain rather than you just saying, I'm sorry, I'm a sinner. I'm sorry, that's my bad. That's a problem. And you see, these symptoms all point to the fact that you may not fully grasp the weight and reality of that sinful beam that Jesus says we all have. All of us have that. That is the starting point. You don't someday gain a beam or the beam doesn't one day grow. You have a beam. And the gospel through the spirit allows you to recognize you have a beam. And that utterly changes the way that you see yourself, the way that you relate to others. And it creates the possibility for a kingdom of humility that otherwise cannot be there because everyone is so overinflating others' flaws and showing grace to ourselves. It is only through the spirit that what primarily comes to convict you, that you have a log. May that humble you. And if you don't catch that, if all you spend time doing is pointing out flaws and sins of others and sharing about those things rather than balancing it out with recognizing your own and addressing your own sins and issues, number one, there's a kingdom imbalance there. But number two, and I say this very graciously, it's possible that your critical judgmental spirit may actually be tearing down community without you even knowing it. Tearing down community. For me, I, I did take some time to reflect the way this shows up in my own life. I think it's when I take, spend more time making evaluations and conclusions about others and their behaviors rather than praying for people and getting to really know them. So if as an example, if the majority of the way that you understand people and relate to them is you drawing evaluations and conclusions rather than praying for them and drawing near to them, this is probably a sure tell sign that you're a judgmental person. And again, the way this shows up for most of us is gossip. I think the most dangerous entry to a conversation is, did you hear about that person? Did you hear about this person? Did you hear what they did? That's something to consider. A judgmental culture, it is absolutely damaging to the kingdom DNA of grace, truth, and love. And some of us, we might need to repent of that, to be honest. Maybe this has been just an unchecked log in our life, and the gospel needs to hit you again and show you, hey, you're, you're causing a lot of spiritual harm and damage because you don't recognize how sinful you really are. Number two, for others of us, I think we need to consider God's explicit call to speak truth into the lives of others. In other words, to be a speck picker. That's kind of the more underrated call here, which is we are all called to be speck pickers as disciples of Christ. See, some of you may not be explicitly judgmental, but you are absolutely passive and you take a back seat when it comes to other people's specks. It's very Asian in nature, right? Maybe we like to avoid confrontation. Maybe we feel like it's not in our place to say anything. But I think what Jesus is saying, not only here, but throughout the New Testament, is if somebody has a speck in their eye, 
I have given you the opportunity to see the speck in their eye and to, in truth, love, and humility, talk to them about it. Don't go to Pastor Tom and say, hey, uh, that member over there has a speck in their eye. What are you going to do about it? Jesus is not saying pastors and elders, you deal with it. He's talking to everyday disciples and Christians. Now, I do acknowledge for some of us, it's not fear of confrontation that we don't speak truth or pick specs, but it's this. A handful of you, it's because you've tried it before and you think it's futile. It's pointless. You know how much of a temptation this is for pastors when we hear of certain specs that people have or certain sins? It's so easy for us to now make a conclusion and judgment and say, okay, so they're going through this problem. They're most likely not going to listen to what I have to say. They're most likely going to do that anyways. And so it's like, what's the point? I was so humbled to hear one commentator say, when you refuse to address a speck in a brother or sister's eye because you think there's no point or because you think they will not change, you've casted judgment. You've casted judgment. You've concluded this person cannot be changed by God, so why try? That's a judgment. For example, if you don't approach someone because you think it's not going to do anything or man, I've already tried. What you've done is you have judged not only their capacity to change, but God's capacity to change them. That's a form of judgment. Thirdly, some of us, I think we need to be open to receive and even maybe seek out spec picking. You know, in a world that is obsessed with the notion that the best way to live is to be left alone, to not have anyone involved in your life, not have anyone speak into or correct your decisions or your worldview. First and foremost, let me tell you, it's not been working very well. How do we know? Even last week we talked about the skyrocketing levels of mental health, anxiety, isolation, discontentment. As the world is becoming increasingly leave me alone, the world is becoming increasingly less joyful and happy. I think there's a direct correlation even on the secular level. But in a more spiritual level, Jesus says in the kingdom, in the alternative way of living, we should not leave each other alone because we need one another. As the song says, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. So what Jesus says, I give you the kingdom and the community of the church because we all have blind spots. Do you know what a blind spot is by definition? It means that no matter how much you try to see it and help yourself, you can't. You're blind to it. In other words, if the world's mantra is leave me alone, mind your own business, I think the kingdom's communal mantra is the exact opposite, which is please don't leave me alone and please make me a part of your business. Is that you? That as a kingdom citizen, part of your business is involved in the communal spec picking of people to help them grow to seek the first the kingdom. And that you have a cry to, I don't want to leave you alone in the same way that you should not leave me alone. The first step towards that is to receive it well. When someone has the love, care, and humility, assuming they're trying to do what Jesus says here to approach you about potentially an uncomfortable topic, maybe it's your lifestyle recent behavior, the way you've been spending your weekends, your relational decisions, is to receive it. But secondly would be to not only receive it, but to seek it out. And I think this is actually the most important thing. If Jesus is saying you need this, a.k.a. a few people who can look out for you and help you catch your blind spots, and you therefore realize, but I do not have this, practical application is simple. Prayerfully seek it out. 
And I'm so curious if even a fraction of our church in humility and prayer said, hey, I need this in my life. In fact, help me to be this in your life. I could really use some spiritual accountability because, you know, last week we heard I, I have to seek the kingdom first. And I can't do that on myself. I need to know what kind of areas that I, I'm, I'm flawed or things I need to work on. And if you did that, I'm curious if God would not help us to mature to be a more kingdom-centered community in our church. Why? Because we're making it a priority to point each other towards the kingdom. Kingdom ethics, lifestyle, and values. So those are the three groups and three applications. Now, as we close, the ultimate reason why judgment has no place in the kingdom of God is nothing less than the gospel. You know, one condition to judgment that we all kind of agree upon is that the judge should have a qualification, should be qualified. And that's why actually the world has a right to say, who are you to judge me? Because what right does a sinner have to judge another sinner, right? Like that would be like if somebody came to me and they had something on their face and they said, hey, you got something on your face. I would say, you got something on your face. It's a never-ending feud and battle of you are not qualified to judge me. And that's 100% true. Every right to make that conclusion. That's why in one sense, it is appropriate that sinners have no right to judge other sinners. But the gospel shows us there is somebody that was qualified to judge you. Namely, the sinless one. Jesus, the judge. He had every right to not look down on you but to literally condemn you and judge you in your sin. And if the kingdom of God were about justice and fair treatment, all of us would be doomed. There's no hope. But again, Sermon on the Mount, good news of the kingdom, is the whole point of though we are fully deserving of judgment and condemnation, even today, Jesus the king, instead of creating a posture of distance, approaches you to close the gap to show mercy, compassion, and grace in your sin to be a friend of sinners, not a condemner of sinners, and to bring us close. And in light of that king and that gospel that, especially as Christians, we proclaim to profess and believe, what should mark our community then is humility, grace, and compassion rooted in truth based on this glorious gospel. So uh, as I invite the praise team up, if I can just have us to reflect and close in a time of prayer. And I've listed three different applications for three different groups. And that's kind of what I hope we can pray for in light of the message. Again, maybe for some of us, we've become so judgmental. We have very little grace and mercy and compassion. We very rarely give benefit of the doubt. We assume the worst in people. And we need to, again, re realize the posture of Jesus. Maybe we need to repent of that. Ask him to make us more gracious. To want to close the gap with people rather than creating distance. And for others of us, I think we need to be more proactive. Maybe actually we're okay, but we need to be more proactive in stepping into what it looks like to be a part of building up the kingdom, building up the body. Seeking first the kingdom is not just an individual pursuit. It's a corporate desire for our fellow brothers and sisters to grow in that as well. So maybe we need to consider that call. And thirdly, maybe for some of us, maybe we're in sin. Maybe we ourselves have specs that are clear. And maybe we're trying to, trying to fix it ourselves. First and foremost, go to Jesus. He doesn't condemn. He doesn't judge. He wants to close that gap through the gospel. He already has through the cross. And again, maybe very practically, others of us need to make conscious decisions to invite others into our lives to do that. So as we take a moment to reflect, let's just pray, and then I will close for us.